This is a Diet of Brussels. It's the summer re-entry. Uh, I know that it's that because uh, I've started getting journalists wanting to do interviews, talk about Brexit now that we're in the hot phase of everything. So uh, it's a good time to uh, check in with all of you, uh, my patient uh, listeners who haven't heard from me for a while, mainly because there's not been a whole lot to tell you. The summer, this is now the fifth summer of uh, this podcast, has followed pretty much the pattern of every summer uh, before, which is to say that there's stuff going on, but ultimately how much it matters is quite debatable. You'll recall that after the uh, confirmation that there wouldn't be an extension of the transition period, the UK and the EU also said that they would accelerate uh, negotiations on the future relationship, which meant more rounds uh, and moving back to face-to-face meetings as quickly as possible. We've now had uh, some of that uh, accelerated schedule take place. We've had two rounds already and we've got another round coming next week. What do we have to show for it? Well, uh, square root of not much at all. Um, the reason for this, I think, is that it's taken quite a long time, firstly, for the two sides to be clear about the detail and the uh, flexibility that's available on the various key disagreements, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But having uh, worked out where each other is, uh, it's become clear that there is a limit to what technical negotiations can do. And I think it's worth stressing that you know, for all the bad press that uh, this process uh, has had over the years, uh, the technical negotiations have worked perfectly well. Uh, the two sides are able to engage with each other. There's a relatively constructive environment and a willingness to find solutions. The problem remains the politics, as it has always been uh, for um, trying to make progress on this. And even though the two sides now know where the other one is and where they are, uh, it's been hard to find solutions that uh, cover the gaps, certainly at uh, the technical expression, of that because really it's about big political choices. If we look at how the negotiations have gone then the issues that we have now are the issues that we've had from the very beginning of the transition period and the negotiations. That's to say uh, around fisheries which uh, is symbolically important rather than economically important, around uh, level playing fields Uh, So the requirements to have uh, equivalent standards to make sure that uh, one side or the other isn't trying to play fast and loose with environmental protections, worker rights, those kinds of things, state aid, which uh, might make uh, products in that territory uh, much more competitive in the other territory. And thirdly, the area of governance. So uh, firstly, how we arrange the uh, new deals and uh, also what role for the Court of Justice. 
Now, that last issue of, of governance, I think we, we have seen, to be fair, a little bit of movement. I think the UK has agreed that we are uh, most sensibly going to have a single legal text with a, a kind of a common framework rather than a world of legal uh, deals, each one of them completely separate. Now, uh, I think that's practicality rather than anything else and the ability to make an argument that you needed uh, complete discrete governance mechanisms in each case uh, just really didn't bear any uh, serious examination. But we still have this problem of the Court of Justice um, and whilst there is talk about creating uh, dispute mechanisms that keep the court very much at arm's length, uh, if... Uh, the UK wants to take a very maximalist view, which it seems to have done so far, then um, any role is a problem. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a continual difficulty. Likewise, on level playing field, I think the issue uh, has been uh, not so much that the UK wants to go low with its standards, but rather that it isn't clear uh, about what its standards will be. Um, and uh, that's particularly true in the case of state aids, where we're still waiting on the UK's proposals for a state aid regime, which would allow everyone to know where they are. And also it's about avoiding language which would say that the UK follows EU standards in those particular areas. That just in political terms, there needs to be uh, something that looks much more uh, sovereign, taking back control in terms of setting their own standards without being held back by the EU. Not, and I think this is really important to say, that they have been. UK standards in most of the level playing field uh, areas are, are uh, higher than the, the common standards that the EU has. So really there isn't a substantive issue. It's much more, again, about the representation of uh, positions. State aid does remain a bit more of a problem just because there is, I think, more of a debate about whether the UK should be trying to step right out of state aid um, in a more radical kind of way, which would cause more difficulty. And then we're talking about fish. Um, I've spent this morning talking to a Dutch uh, TV crew at quite some length about fish and what's the right thing and would taking back control of British waters save fishing communities uh, to which the short answer is basically no. Uh, as much as it is economically uh, minor in the scheme of things for both sides, fisheries will matter because uh, they have dug themselves in uh, in their rhetoric in a way that makes it very hard to come up with something that looks uh, mutually acceptable. And the symbolic value of fisheries is something that uh, is going to really cause problems uh, throughout the rest of this process, however it goes. Uh, potentially there is some flexibility that the UK, for example, would like uh, annual renegotiations of access uh, the EU would like to have a more permanent framework. Uh, the logical uh, landing space between the two is a multi-annual uh, system. So instead of every year, maybe every five years, you revisit this. But uh, I think the politics of it remains really quite uh, tricky um, 
both the UK side and for some of the member states who have made a big song and dance about this, uh, mainly ones with uh, substantial fishing interests in British waters. So taken together in the rounds, I could have recorded this back in March, and I probably did, and told you that we need to have a, a kind of a, a coming together of uh, the principles in this negotiation. And there, there really is nothing to say. Uh, whilst there's been some muttering on the European side about uh, an informal discussion in mid-October around the European Council uh, on Brexit, uh, the UK is not rushing to try and make that happen or to uh, frame it as the point at which uh, things will get unlocked. The difficulty is that time is short. And I say that very much aware that I've spent five years talking about uh, the problem of a lack of time. But here that is even more uh, urgent than is otherwise the case. We don't have any of that can we have an extension uh, talk that we had with Article 50 that you remember took us uh, a long way past the original deadline, nearly a year. Uh, so we can't extend beyond the end of this calendar year, the transition period. So if we want to avoid any kind of gap, then we need to have uh, not only a deal by that point, but a deal that has had uh, some ratification to it, from the European Parliament, who are not particularly happy, from the Council uh, of the EU, uh, which includes some member states who are not going to be particularly happy, and from the UK with some people who are definitely not very happy uh, about it, whatever it is. Now that needs to happen by uh, the 31st of December. The eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed that that's uh, New Year's Eve. Most uh, relevant bodies are not going to be sitting over the Christmas period and it's hard to see how uh, certainly on the European side anyone's going to dig themselves out from uh, behind their turkey and uh, stuffing to push through uh, a trade deal with the UK. So really uh, mid-December uh, is the last point at which you can realistically hope to get this ratification completed uh, in time. Now we also need to factor in the need for a legal text, and even though there is plenty of it lying around, uh, even a political agreement will need some weeks in order to be put together, um, and then, uh, in the case of the UK, translated into a, a piece of primary legislation. So when people are talking about the end of October as the last point for reaching a full legal text, that is pretty inflexible because uh, that leaves only six weeks for ratification, which uh, is, I think, realistic in the context of member states of the EU needing to double check that they're happy with the detail and to push this through uh, on that side, even before we get to any kind of anxiety about uh, British parliamentary ratification, where um, either number 10 is able to successfully sell this as the best deal ever, which I can exclusively reveal is going to be how they will describe it if they have a deal, uh, because that's just the way that they will work. 
So either they're successful in that with their backbenchers or they're not, in which case uh, they will hope that the opposition parties will uh, feel that it's better to uh, approve uh, this withdrawal agreement rather than to go into a, a non-agreement uh, situation with all the dire prognostications that come and the risk of being blamed for that happening. Now, if... The end of October is the last point that we can have a text. That means we've got uh, two months uh, in order to get to that text. So again, we need to sort out the legal niceties of the precision. We need to have some big movement on those big issues and actually a host of other smaller ones where uh, things have been left rather up in the air and are a bit vague. So uh, I think... Uh, really, realistically, uh, September is the month in which we need to see some kind of movement happening. Now, uh, bitter experience tells me that there's nothing so uh, movable as the point at which things move, um, and it wouldn't be a surprise if we got to the end of September with nothing to show for it. So let's assume that we're going to be a bit pessimistic. What might be a leading indicator of moving to prepare the ground? Well, part of it might be a reduction in hostilities. All through the process so far, particularly in the summer, we've had uh, sniping and uh, sharp comments from both sides, from David Frost and Michel Barnier, the two lead negotiators, each of whom have pointed to the inadequacies and the unhappinesses that they uh, perceive uh, around them with the process, with their opponents, with the lack of seriousness. And uh, whilst part of this is theatre, uh, I think we would want to be looking closely at the statements that come out at the end of the rounds next week uh, and the following round from that. If there is nothing to indicate at least a uh, non-worsening of the situation, then we might hope that there is an opportunity to move forward. At the same time, uh, it's clear that part of the British strategy from number 10 is to rerun the, the Article 50 playbook, which is to say, let's hope nobody actually cares too much about the detail of this that we can sell the fact that we're getting Brexit done as much more important than any of the detail that that might involve. Now, the, the hard version of that is say, don't read it, just trust us and we'll get this through. But uh, if uh, Article 50 tells us uh, anything, it's that we're likely to find that there is an issue onto which people latch uh, and which gives them cause for uh, concern or rebellion. Now, in the case of the withdrawal agreement, that was the Northern Ireland Protocol, which led to Theresa May's replacement, uh, walk in the park between uh, Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, uh, to end up with an outcome that was actually even more favourable to the EU, which Boris Johnson was able to sell as a, a big triumph uh, and a moving forward. So my pessimistic interpretation is that something like this is the, the way that number 10 is likely to want to proceed again, to hope that uh, the symbolic elements are addressed enough 
that uh, backbenchers do not kick up a fuss. Um, and uh, that's going to matter because, remember, we're going to be potentially in the middle of a worsening situation on the COVID front, uh, which has been something where the government has not won itself a lot of admirers within its own party. And if its attempts to uh, push through a programme of action on COVID backfires by, let's say, promoting a, a return to workspaces and to education environments, leading to uh, a big growth in infections and deaths, and then a second lockdown, then number 10 is going to be a lot more cautious. So the interlocking of these pieces is going to matter as much as anything else. The potentially more optimistic view is that number 10 tries to engage with MPs and say it's not perfect, but it's better than the situation we would get without a deal. Um, and even those who might uh, be mistrustful of the EU might be persuaded that perhaps it's better to at least have a, a set of agreements on which things can be developed rather than the wild west of a non-agreement situation particularly if it lessens the impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's important to mention this because that protocol will be coming into effect on January 1, 2021, uh, whether there's a deal or not, because it's much more extensive than anything that's been discussed by uh, Barnier and Frost. That matters because it's a test of... Uh, how far the UK is actually going to make good on its legal commitments and obligations. It's an opportunity for uh, each side to show how they might uh, actually in practice make arrangements work. But also potentially it matters because it uh, has an impact on the territorial politics of the UK that with Scottish independence seemingly getting a big boost in recent months, uh, the SNP doing well in polling, that if Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland are able to make the protocol work in a way that seems to benefit uh, Northern Ireland uh, and uh, show that there is a different path, then that might have an impact on Scottish independence debates that are going to be going on in the run-up to the elections next year. So Northern Ireland matters in of itself, but also as a signifier about the integrity of the United Kingdom itself. All of this leaves us in a degree of limbo right now. There is really very little interest on the European side for getting into uh, more psychodrama of the kind that we had in uh, twenty. Uh, 19 with the various extensions and uh, the attempts to uh, get into uh, whether the UK was actually going to ratify this withdrawal agreement. Instead, the EU's priorities are very firmly fixed on coronavirus, on uh, the economy, uh, on immigration, on uh, relations with third countries, not least the United States, with whom uh, things have not been uh, terribly happy. So Brexit falls down the political agenda. And to be honest, it's fallen down the political agenda here in the UK as well. 
it's hard to think of when there has been a big statement from government about how this fits into a wider scheme of things. Boris Johnson, in that sense, is continuity to Theresa May in that neither of them seems to have a sense uh, that they have shared with how Brexit serves their vision of a future British uh, society and of a British place in the world. The danger, and we'll be coming back to this in the decades to come, is that Brexit is just treated as an irrelevance. We'll get it out of the way and we'll worry about things as they crop up. But as we've seen so clearly in the last four years since the referendum, there remains a very large area of uncertainty. And here again, we might point to state aid as an example of that, that taking back control also means taking back responsibility. The opportunity to free ride on the decisions of others, to hide one's indecision behind group uh, uh, policy disappears. So for the UK, uh, there are big choices available, big choices that will have to be made uh, either by active choice uh, or by non-action. And I think that's something that's uh, really worth uh, considering in the months to come, that this is not a discrete process that will end on the 31st of December, but will carry on for a very long time. All of this uh, has been known for the entirety of this process. It was always clear from the beginning that those questions needed to be addressed, that those discussions needed to be had, and yet were not. This is maybe the, the ongoing and most bizarre paradox that for all that we talk about Brexit, we haven't really talked about Brexit. We talk about, uh, you know, uh, what we should do on membership uh, or with a deal, but we don't really talk about why that fits into a bigger picture. Those things are not going to happen this year. Um, if there's one thing I'm really very confident about is that given that we have not had those discussions and debates uh, during the referendum campaign, after the referendum, through one and a half sets of international negotiations with the EU, we are not going to have them at this point. Instead, uh, the tendency to keep this as crisis management, to try and contain it, to try and dampen it down, to try and avoid it, to try and direct to uh, other things that we might focus on, is going to remain as strong as it ever has. That's understandable, but that's also not particularly healthy for solving this problem in any long-term stable kind of way. Which means uh, we'll have more episodes. I'll stop here um, and I will wish you a happy and safe return to whatever it is that you do normally. Uh, and uh, well, let's hope that we're able to do that in a lasting kind of way. However, uh, the key area of attention, I think, uh, on the Brexit front remains this next month uh, and how that plays out. As that moves on, I'll talk with you again. <laughs>